Hebrews chapter 10 is where we will be this morning. Uh, so, but this morning is interesting because this morning we arrive at the center of Hebrews. Now, not the center of Hebrews physically, there's more words before and there's less words after, but we arrive kind of at, if you will, a thematic center, if you will. It's chapter 10, particularly verses 19 and 39, it's kind of the place where everything before, all the previous chapters, uh, sort of crescendo into this section, and then it gives way to a second crucial encouragement that the preacher desires to give to those listening, those reading this sermon. So chapter 10 kind of is a center where some things crescendo, and it gives way to the rest of the book of another huge encouragement the preacher wants to give. So here's how we're going to approach this last section of chapter 10. We're going to break verses 19 to 39 into two sermons, uh, because what we want to do within those two sermons is to see the clarion call of Hebrews. I just don't want us to miss anything. One, today we're going to look at confidence that we have in the person and work of Christ, And this confidence, as we'll pick up when we get back in in January, well, it brings great endurance in the face of opposition. So it's kind of our goal in these last few verses, to see the confidence we have in Christ, how it affects the way we live, and then we'll explore in January up till Easter how this confidence breeds great endurance in the face of opposition. But that's, that's what's happening in these few verses. And I, I say that because I just I want us to appreciate what is happening in this text. So we're going to slow down a good bit this morning uh, because we want to look at this section and really explore what it means. And so this morning... You need to understand, and what will be argued from the text that the preacher is is laying before us, is that our confidence in Jesus is not static, meaning that it's not just something we hold dear, which is true, but it leads to a way of life. Confidence in Jesus leads to a way of thinking, or at least it should It leads to specific actions, and these actions that the preacher is going to explore, I believe, should characterize our lives as confident Christ followers. So let's begin by looking at verses 19 to 21. 19 to 21 in chapter 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, and we can say sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now let's pause there. You're like, wait a minute, there's more, there's more. Well, there's more, but let's just pause there for a second. These first few verses, much like last week, they serve as a summary of where our confidence is found, but it goes a little bit further and tells us how we find so much confidence in the person and work of Christ. You see, it boils down to three pictures that we have explored thoroughly. Blood, curtain, and high priest. I took the liberty of underlining just to show you. I'm not making this up. So these three kind of pictures, if you will, have been explored thoroughly, we have learned that they all point to Jesus. More specifically, they point to the person and work 
of Christ. We are confident of our salvation because he, Jesus, has done it. He has accomplished it. And he will continue to keep us close as we await our final destination. But blood, curtain, high priest, it all captures very well the preacher, and we would say our, strong belief in Jesus. A strong belief in him that is uh, stronger than human effort. A belief in him that is stronger than our circumstances. Remember blood? We are forgiven. We're cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus. Curtain? Remember that? Curtain reminds us that it has been torn, that we have access to God, that we can go to the holy of holies because of the broken body of Jesus. We have access to God Almighty. High priest, that has been argued so thoroughly for quite a few chapters, reminds us that Christ serves not only as our mediator, but also our intercessor before God. Now, we have unpacked all of those things very fully. We have unpacked them uh, in previous weeks. So I encourage you to go back, read the first 10 chapters, reread that, see all of that being unpacked. You can also listen to those sermons if you will. You don't have to listen to me again, but they do unpack more fully what those three things are saying. But do you hear the preacher once again saying, our confidence is in Christ? Why are we so confident? Because of those realities. Those things, in a nutshell, represent our confession, if you will, about the person and work of Christ. Those things represent strong beliefs we have about Jesus. But what the preacher is interested in doing in our time together this morning, he is interested in taking those beliefs, taking that confidence and saying that that leads to certain actions. Those things should and must have an impact in our lives. This is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. You see, the preacher believes that confident trust in Christ, it actually makes us a different people. It makes us different people who are peculiar because we take different actions as we think about life. You see, confident trust in Christ, it just leads to a different way of life. And this way of life is characterized by steadfastness by a confidence that is not easily shaken. You see, we are not a people tossed to and fro, or at least we should not. <laughs> but we are ones who remain steady when the tides of compromise slam upon our shores. We are not people who should be easily tossed about. Why? Because of Christ. We are confident 
and all that he has accomplished wrapped up in those three beautiful words. So this morning, we have laid that foundation for months now. Let's see the actions of a people who are confident in Christ, okay? Let's explore together what it looks like when people are confident in the person and work of Christ. So listen as I read the next section, verses 22 to 25. Verse 22, we left on this cliffhanger. So let's go back to 21, since we have a priest over the house of God. Here we go, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see, as you see, the day drawing near. Verses 22 through 25, there are three let us statements. Now, I did not say let us. I said let us. I want to be clear, it's been known that my enunciation skills are not on par with some of you superior talkers out there. Let us statements, and now my preaching professor would be so proud of me because you're never going to forget this. And quite frankly, this text was preached to me in college, and wouldn't you know, the preacher actually brought out a head of lettuce. I have not forgotten that (laughs) message. I save you from that analogy now, but let us. There are three let us statements that explain actions of a confident people in Christ. Each one of these let us statements have already found its way into the sermon really at crucial points. Some of this might actually sound familiar. But see here, as a good preacher does, he nicely pulls all of those things together to encourage and challenge those who are listening. Let us draw near, let us hold fast our confession, let us consider how to stir one another up are the three things that should characterize a people who are confident in the person and work of Christ. So, let us, yeah, you see what I did there? Let us take each one in turn to be encouraged and dare I say challenged this morning. The first let us statement is let us draw near. Naturally, when we study, when we consider what Christ has done upon the cross, should we not be a people who go often to God? You see, being in God's presence, as we have learned from the book of Hebrews, being in God's presence was difficult It was hard. It was actually unattainable. Except for once a year, and only the high priest, and you hope he comes out. (laughs) 
being in the presence of God was an extreme difficulty before Christ. But today, brothers and sisters, we can go to him in, did you hear the text? Full assurance. What a different reality that you and I have today. We are so confident in Christ that we can draw near to God in full assurance. This is overwhelming. And the question naturally arises, well, why can we have that posture? Well, the text makes plain, as 19 and 21 have already said, but yet the preacher unpacks it a little bit more. We can go in full assurance because our hearts have been made pure. Our conscience has been cleansed, and our bodies have been washed and purified. You see, these are important details. And I dare say, before the book of Hebrews, they probably weren't important details to you. But to be in the presence of God, to have full assurance that we can be in the holy presence of God, these details are important. Because you and I know that these details are so significant. Why? Because of the holiness of God and the unholiness of sin. What do you mean that I can go near to God? You see, these points, they bring about our confidence. They heighten our confidence. They create a assurance that we can actually be beyond the curtain. That we can be in the holy of holies. You see, that's the backdrop of this let us. That Christ has accomplished so much that you and I, in full assurance, can approach God's presence. We can be in God's presence because we are made holy. We are changed by the person and work of Christ. Do you understand this morning? And more clearly, do you believe this morning that everything has been accomplished for us to draw near? Everything has been done. So naturally, it doesn't take a super intellectual person to see, since everything's been done, let us draw near. If that significant amount of work has been accomplished so that we can be in the presence of God, well, then we should be a people characterized by drawing near to God. Often, here's where we can be, or I can be, a little pastoral. Brothers and sisters, how often do you go? I don't think that I need to convince you of the glorious nature of the work of Christ that allows you and I to be in the presence of God. I hope that Ten chapters of Hebrews <laughs> have unpacked that to a degree that you go, wow, 
that is overwhelming. That is miraculous that we can go beyond the curtain. I think the question for us this morning is, okay then, how often do you go? What are your daily rhythms? Do those daily rhythms, do they include this imperative, this command to draw near? Might need to let that one sink in just a little bit. Is your calendar arranged in such a way that it hears that and says, oh yeah, oh yeah, I am so committed to that. I will rearrange, I will plan, I will do whatever it takes to draw near to God. And if you don't think I'm preaching to myself, well, you're wrong. Are there moments in your day set aside to focus and to intentionally draw near to God. And I can hear you now, well, I can be in God's presence all the time, Pastor. I don't know why I go country accent. That's just where I go. Not that country people are that sour, but nonetheless. But I can hear us, well, yeah, God's presence, I can be, yeah, you're right. But is there times and moments in our day where we are focused on drawing near to God? Much has been done for us to do this simple little phrase, draw near to God. Much has been accomplished. When you consider all that Christ has done, when you consider his person, consider his work, look at the old way, see the new way. When you look at all of that, it's unthinkable to think we would not go to God often. But if we were to be honest with ourselves, not, not that you need to raise your hand, but it does happen, doesn't it? It happens that we often don't draw near. You see, one of my aims this morning, based upon the preacher here and me having the opportunity to preach, one of our aims this morning is to be as practical as possible with distinct and pointed applications. If I take expositional preaching to mean the shape and the feel of the text is the shape and the feel of the message, well, then the shape of the feel is, hey, you, <laughs> draw near to God. I dare say it is the most crucial, important activity that you will do any given day. Some of you have regiments and medication that are significant. Yes, they are important. But dare I say, drawing near to God is of utmost importance. See, this command this morning, and let me press and meddle a little bit. You see, this command, draw near to God, it actually should compel you and I. It actually should be working on us right now to say, you know what, I, I need to build daily habits that will remind me, 
that will maybe jar my memory. To know and realize what we have in Christ. In today's world and a thousand notifications, perhaps you create one notification that says, hey, draw near to God. And I got to be honest, it's embarrassing to think, but I'm preaching to myself. You would think a pastor would have it down, but even we, oh spiritual ones, you who have walked with Christ for many years, you can attest to the realities, right? One of the greatest gauges of how well I'm doing here is how sour I am each and every day. <laughs> how quick I am with others. How easily bothered I am by dumb stuff. It's an incredible gauge to remind me that you have not drawn near to God. We have access to God the Father. We can visit the throne room of God in full assurance he will receive us based upon the merits of Christ's shed blood that has cleansed us. Your full assurance is, is that his ear is tuned in. I had a friend in college, and I've shared this analogy before, but every time I think about drawing near to God, him listening to us, I think of this analogy. We are in Israel, incredible time. We're touring the Holy Lands. We're in Nazareth. We're in a church, and we're reflecting on our time in Israel, and we're talking about God, and this guy says, you know, sometimes I think of God as a big ear. We're all like, well, that's odd. And this guy was kind of odd anyway, so it worked out. Um, but then he goes on to say, it's just, it, it reminds me that I can't believe he listens to me. I can't believe that through the person, he didn't make the connection, but we can, through the person and work of Christ, his ear is tuned. He's listening. And really this morning, it's, it's kind of simple. It's really simple, but I'll admit it's hard to do. Here it is. Simply create space in your day to pray and read God's word. Do you know the first thing I learned when I became a Christian is to Create space in my day to pray and read God's word. It's ancient. It is old school. You know why? Because it's that important. You know why? Because the scriptures command the same thing. Why is it the first discipline that you and I learn? Because it's of utmost importance. It's something that we all learn so early in our waltz. But I think when we hear it early in our waltz, like, okay, I should just do that. But we never really connect. Or maybe we just forget that that activity, it really is the greatest privilege that any human has. To be in God's presence and not die. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. That's what we've been learning in Hebrews. This is why the curtain reminded them all the time, we can't go there. We oftentimes don't realize, though it's an early discipline that we learn, that we teach, and that we share with our kiddos, that we share with early converts, but yet I don't know that we understand it is the absolute greatest privilege any human has. To be in the presence of God, it really is a miracle. Being in God's presence, it brings joy, it brings comfort, and I'll go ahead and warn you, it brings conviction, it brings growth, it brings maturity. 
And as Hebrews has already told us, being in God's presence brings grace and mercy. You see, this is not the first time that we've been told to draw near. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, find grace to help in time of need. You see, yes, we create daily rhythms, but we go there when life is hard. We go there when we are in need. We go there even in rejoicing to receive grace and mercy. It is in the presence of God that we are reminded of who God is and what we have in Christ. How can you not help but walk away encouraged? When I was in college and I would leave my house, my mom, she's awesome, but she, she had this little thing, she would do this and she would wave at me, because this means I love you, and you know, I'm like, okay, mom, I get it, I know you love me. Every time I hang up the phone, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yes, mom, I know you love me. What if my mom has stopped doing that? You know, for the first maybe, you know, 10 or so phone calls or leaving the house, maybe I don't think anything about it, but maybe a month goes by and I go, huh. I, I mean, I know my mom loves me, but I haven't been reminded of that. She hasn't said that. I mean, over time, would it not all of a sudden start to weigh on you? When we don't spend time in God's Word where He's screaming, He's screaming from the truth of the scriptures. You are cared for. You are loved. My way is better. Be obedient. It's good for you because I love you. Well, we can anticipate the implications of that. There's so much there, but yet there's more. Part of our confident trust in Christ, not only does it cause us to draw near often, but it also causes us, let us, here's the command, Hold fast our confession without wavering. We as a people have strong belief in Jesus Christ's person and work. Christ's person and work. We have for centuries, and I say we, God's people, we have put those beliefs into succinct statements, right? And these succinct statements, they confess what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about his work upon the cross, what we believe about his person. We put those things together. We confess that these are true. We declare them. We confess them as the greatest realities of life now and to come. You see, there are promises that we hold dear that are based upon Christ. We understand that there is much to enjoy right now and there's much more to enjoy at the final consummation of Christ's victory. The preacher believes that our confident trust in Christ causes us to hold fast. If you don't speak that way, hold tight. Hold close. Hold dear. All of our beliefs, because those beliefs are not out of thin air. You see, those beliefs are based upon a Savior who has done the work, who has overcome sin's claim upon us. Death did not keep him. We can hold our confession tight, believing that it's actually worth it to hold it. 
Notice the degree that we can hold fast. We can do that without wavering. You see, this confession is so true. This person and work of Christ is so right that you and I don't have to worry about it going out of style. We don't have to let others influence us with their isms and new philosophy of the day. You see, Christ is just that true. He's just that right. That tomorrow, it's already settled for me. Christ, it is settled, it is fixed, and I can trust it. But we all know the temptation to waver is always there. But the preacher believes that it doesn't have to be. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Don't you love the wording? So just rolls on. He who promised. Could have just said God doesn't lie. That would have worked. But he who promised is faithful. The content of the character from whom all our confession is built upon, the content of his character is faithfulness. And since all that we believe is built on him, then we can believe it to the fullest extent because he's faithful. God does not lie, nor does he waver in his promises. Let us hold fast our confession without wavering. Now, this morning, I believe there are several ways for us to get down into the nitty-gritty with this imperative. But I think this question may do us some good. Where is the greatest temptation for you to waver in faithfulness to Christ? Is it at work? Is it in your finances? Is it late at night when everyone else is in bed? What about parenting? What about the latest philosophy of the day that kind of feels good? Easy believism? That sounds appealing. Perhaps I should be more specific this morning. At work, when you're up against maintaining integrity, and you know that when you're going to maintain that integrity, it's surely going to cost you that promotion. Well, perhaps I could, perhaps I could, perhaps, like, it's a big promotion. I've worked my whole life for this spot. It could help my family out. Does materialism, keeping up with the Joneses, does this tempt you into believing that there's greater joy in your possessions? Do you trust more in stuff than Christ? Do you have more confidence in material things than Christ's broken body and shed blood to purchase for you a better life? Can it get any better than that? Does a big bank account give you more security and comfort than Christ's sufficient work upon the cross? When you are ostracized for maintaining a modest lifestyle so you don't strap your family with debt, well, the temptation might come to compromise, right? 
to spend in a way that reflects a greater trust in things than Christ. We are a peculiar people. We handle our finances in peculiar ways. We are a generous people. What about parenting? I only mention this because, well, I'm in the thick of it. When parenting your child in a way, and you're, you're choosing as a mom and a dad to parent your child in a way that's going to highlight Christ's work upon the cross, when that commitment puts you in the minority at soccer games, school functions, in the local neighborhood, do you feel the pressure to cowtail to culture's ways? Now, we said cowtail in Tennessee a lot. I hope that works here. To cater to give in. Mom and dad, we know making some decisions in how we parent our children will put us in the minority, will make us look odd. Why don't you have this yet? Why don't you do this? And we're going to feel the weight of that, right? It doesn't take long for the kid to come home and say, hold up, wait a second. Why do I not have this? Why do I not have that? Oh, sweetie, we want you to see how wonderful Christ is. He's better. Even what we believe, our confident trust in Christ can help us hold fast and believe that it's worth it, mom and dad. It is worth it for our kiddos to treasure Christ more and to develop a strong confession built on Christ than clicks. It's worth it. Don't waver, mom and dad. He who began a good work in your kiddos, well, he's faithful. Praise the Lord. As a church, when holding to a tight and clear belief in Jesus, when it cost us social status, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we will not waver. We won't. I suspect as we hold to a strong biblical ethic, it might put us on the outside of social status, but we will not waver. Because he who has promised is faithful. In light of that, let me ask you, what these worldly things promise, can they actually fulfill it? <laughs> can can they actually come through? No, they can't. He has come through. God has come through. He'll continue to be faithful. We need not waver in the slightest, though it might look bleak in the moment. Well, there's one more let us consider. The last let us consider is this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. I don't know about you, but it is amazing to me that one of the things that our confident trust in Christ brings is a strong commitment and responsibility to one another. Did you expect that? I, it's kind of, huh. Our confident trust in Christ breathes in us a strong commitment and responsibility to one another. That commitment, it focuses on a love for God, a love for each other. It focuses on a willingness to push each other 
towards greater faithfulness, consistent good deeds. The aim of our stirring up, or we might say our work in each other's lives, the aim is love and good deeds. I love the preacher here because this last imperative has already explored a few practical applications. Did you catch that? It already lays before us some practical ways what it means, if you will, to stir up one another. It's really simple. Meet together and encourage. <laughs> Don't you love that? It's so practical. If you're going to accomplish this command, well then, don't neglect to meet together. Yes and amen, says every pastor in the world. (laughs) Yeah. It's really so simple that we can sometimes miss it. This is why the preacher seems to feel the need to say it, because what it, some are in the habit of not gathering. And it happens all the time, doesn't it? None of us are immune from that. One week away leads to another, that leads to another, to finally it's not on our radar anymore. This is to our detriment, because we will miss being stirred up. You see, it's here in the local gathering that this activity takes place, according to the preacher. Take it up with him, according to God's word. That it's here where this activity, where our confident trust in Christ is on display of stirring up one another. We meet, we encourage, and we stir up one another. But this does not happen by accident. Did you hear what the text says? It actually says, consider. Do you throughout the week stop and consider how to stir up your church family? And then when we gather, encourage them in what you were considering? In in today's world, you can send a text message. Do you make being here a priority? Well, I'm not trying to make people feel bad. You get sick, you're out of town, things happen. I'm not saying that. But the heart is committed to being with God's people. Is it a priority? It's simple, really. Be here as often as you can. You know, there's so many other ways to practically do this. We around here often say that one of the best activities you could give yourself to is one-to-one Bible reading. Grab someone, read the Bible together. We have other avenues, disciple makers, Wednesday night at six o'clock, women's Bible reading and study, Wednesday nights in the morning and evening, Sunday studies, 9 a.m., come, gather, be stirred up. Here's a novel ideal. Take the member directory and pray through it. It's simple, really, isn't it? But yet the preacher believes that confident trust in Christ spills out in us being deeply committed to each other. The bottom line is that we need each other, whether you believe that or not. We absolutely need each other. We must prioritize the gathering so we can encourage one another to greater love of Jesus, 
and greater faith in living out that love and good deeds. Well, this morning, we've given so much application. The way that this has been structured is to look at these calls and get extremely practical. I'd encourage you this year, as we're coming to the end of this year, that whatever the Lord is doing in these three things, I wonder if you will commit to saying, okay, Lord, in 2024, I'm going to commit to doing these things. Perhaps if you've never been able to make it to a disciple makers, maybe you'll make that a priority next year. Perhaps getting up a little bit earlier on a Sunday to come at 9 a.m., perhaps that makes a little bit more sense now. It's often been said that our, our, our preparation for Sunday morning is a Saturday evening activity, right? Getting prepared and ready. Perhaps the, Lord, perhaps the Lord is working on you and where your confidence lies. Where are you tempted to waver? This morning we've given so much application. I trust that the Spirit is working and helping those things land on your heart as needed. But one succinct statement is, is I'll be honest, it's kind of hard with this text. But here's what I think the text is doing. The text is trying to say that our confident trust in Christ compels us to a consistent way of life for Christ. A consistent way of life that is characterized by steadfastness, that's characterized by deep, confident trust in Christ. So let us draw near to God often, enjoy his presence. When's the last time you met with God? Let us hold fast our confession, knowing that it's worth it. Even if it costs us reputation and suffering, because he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another. If you're a member here, I hope you consistently experience this weekly. It must start with each of us taking serious our confidence in Christ, in his person, in his work that has brought us together this morning and that brings us together as a church. It starts with a confident trust in him. It starts with understanding what we have in him that leads to our strong commitment and responsibility to each other. If you're with us this morning and you don't know Christ, please grab someone. We've explored what it looks like to have confident trust in Christ, how it radically rearranges our life. And perhaps that has stirred in you a sense of, I don't have that. Would you grab someone this morning, myself, Jared, we love to chat. Church family, we have a confidence built upon Christ that radically rearranges the way that we live. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for this time together this morning. We've explored, you know, just the, the tip of the iceberg here this morning. We've looked at a lot of ways by which our confident trust influences our way of life. I ask that through this time together, you brought conviction, that you've challenged us on some areas. I also pray that in this time together, you've encouraged us and that our hearts are singing 
with great joy. And Lord, that we will often find ourselves in your presence throughout this week. So Father, we ask you to um, look after us and take this text and remind us this week of these realities. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.